Right, take out your Bibles, remain standing, and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 16 to 29. Hear the word of the true and living God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The sends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome here. It's good to see everyone here. Today we will be continuing our series in the book of John, so I invite you to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 6. Now, if you haven't already caught on, John is very clear and repetitive in his message. John takes certain themes and patterns and he develops them and repeats them in the various stories that we've been reading through, and we'll see that more as we continue on. Now, I have a digital concordance on my computer Uh, It's very handy. I just looked up the first six chapters of John, and it tells me all the most used words. And the most repetitive theological words, so not the words of and and the, because those are obviously the most, are Jesus, come, Father, God, believe, and Son. Now, in a sentence, you could sum up the books so far by saying that Jesus, the Son, has come, he was sent by God the Father, believe in him. And today's passage uh, essentially tells us that exact thing. Now last week we saw and looked at the miracle of the multiplying loaves and fish that Jesus did, and today Jesus walks on the water. And in the coming weeks we'll spend time uh, where Jesus talks to this group of people uh, that he did the miracle of the loaves uh, with. They follow him across the lake, and so he's teaching them, and that's a long discourse. Now, when Jesus performed that first miracle with the food, he was showing his power 
to multiply things greatly, similar to the Old Testament prophets, but in a superior measure. And today again, Christ shows us that he is the true prophet, greater than all who were before him. Let's pray as we consider God's word. Lord, we come to you in need. We come to your word as the deer comes to streams, seeking water, seeking nourishment. And that is what we seek from your word. Christ has told us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Lord, may we hunger after your word this morning. And we pray that uh, through the preparation that I have done, that I could bring this food to the people, and that it would be your word uh, truly. Help them to receive it. Uh, Help us to understand it. uh, And help us, as we go from this place, to bear fruit for your good name. Uh, May we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Now last week, if you remember in the story, at the end of the miracle, all the people wanted to make Jesus their king. And Pastor Riley brought that out. That wasn't what Jesus came to to be, was their political king. Uh, So Jesus withdrew himself from the crowd to avoid that. And before he left the area... Uh, He instructed his disciples, get into the boat and go to Capernaum. And Jesus himself went onto a mountain. He withdrew, uh, basically got away from the crowds, and he ended up praying for most of the night. And with the help of the other gospel accounts, it tells us that Jesus came to the disciples on the water in the fourth watch of the night, which is right before dawn. So this is very late in the night. The disciples have been on the water for many hours. It was windy, the sea was rough, there was a storm. The disciples were rowing hard to get to shore. And then they saw something. They thought it was a ghost or a spirit walking on the water. And that's pretty understandable, right? People don't walk on water. But since this was, in fact, Jesus, true flesh and blood, a person coming towards them, I think they began to realize this isn't a ghost. This is someone walking on the water, and they began to be even more terrified. Now remember, it's late at night, right? It's stormy, they're on a boat, they've been rowing for hours, they're tired, and now they see this dark figure walking on the water towards them, right? At times there's waves and he's hidden, but he's coming, he's getting closer. Uh, That would be truly terrifying. Now Jesus, thankfully, does not try to scare them, uh, but he brings this calming presence, he calls out to them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. What a relief that would have been to hear that this is the master. This is not a ghost. This is not uh, a demon or a spirit, something trying to uh, bring us harm. But Jesus, it is our master. And then, interestingly, John tells us, immediately they were at the land uh, where they wanted to go. Now, I don't think this is describing a teleportation. The other gospel accounts tell us that the storm stopped when Jesus got into the boat. If you've ever been in a a kayak or something, when the water's against you, it feels like you can never get where you're going. Uh, But when the the storm stopped, now they could actually move. So it it felt like they were at land instantly. They could actually get going in the right direction. Now, if you're familiar with this story at all, uh, you're probably wondering, what about Peter? Peter? Right? We all know the story. Jesus is walking on the water, and then Peter uh, talks to Jesus and says, 
Uh, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. Well, actually, only Matthew records that part of the story. Uh, Both Mark and John uh, talk about Jesus walking on the water, but they don't talk about Peter. But in Matthew's account, uh, as we said, Peter calls out to Jesus, right? Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter walks over on the water towards Jesus. But then when Peter saw the wind, it says, he feared, he was scared, and he started to sink And he cried, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out immediately and took his hand. And he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now when they get into the boat, the other disciples have a natural response of worship. And they declare to Jesus, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, as I said before, this miracle shows us the superiority of Jesus as the greatest prophet. Now, you may know in the Old Testament, there's lots of times where crossing water was necessary and it was done using miraculous means. For example, the Israelites, they crossed the Red Sea, right? Moses raised his hand and the waters were parted and the Israelites crossed through on dry land. And then many years later, when they entered the Promised Land, They crossed the Jordan River. Uh, This time, the Levites were instructed to go in first. They were carrying the ark. They walked in, the waters parted, and they walked through again. Uh, Also, Elijah and Elisha, the prophets, uh, they crossed the Jordan River using Elijah's cloak to smack the water, and it parted. Uh, All miraculous uh, things that happened in the Old Testament through the prophets. But now in this case, Uh, Sorry, in all these cases in the Old Testament, we see that the water moved and the people still walked over on dry land, right? We can comprehend that. Water moves, okay, so it's dry, so I can walk through. And also there was some sort of symbolic gesture, right? Moses raises his hand, uh, Elijah and Elisha smack the cloak. But Jesus, he doesn't need to do any of that. He doesn't need to move the water so he can walk on dry land. He just walks on the water. He doesn't have to command the water. He doesn't use his hand uh, or a staff or any sort of thing uh, to show that, you know, I'm controlling this. He just walks. The water obeys him. And in fact, uh, what's even more amazing is Jesus, when he commands Peter to come out on the water, the water holds Peter. And then Jesus uh, senses that Peter is getting afraid and he lets the water begin uh, to allow him to sink. Uh, like what we would all do. (laughs) And then he saves Peter. He still grabs his hand. He doesn't make him feel like he's going to drown. Now, I have to remind myself, and and kids, teens, adults, this is not fiction. This is actual story. This happened. This is a historical fact. Now, imagine seeing this as one of the disciples. Peter gets out of the boat He doesn't sink. He walks on the water over to Jesus. And then all of a sudden he starts sinking. But then Jesus grabs him and they both uh, walk back into the boat. Now, of course, the response is worship and awe and reverence. This man has mastery over the sea as well. This isn't the first miracle that Jesus did. He demonstrated his divine power in many ways already. And this is just 
another. And then right when they get into the boat, uh, as we mentioned, the storm immediately stops. And now they can row to shore with ease. What a powerful moment for the disciples. Right? This is another level of awesome that they just witnessed. Now, I think when we imagine this story, when we think of this story, we always put ourselves in Peter's shoes. At least that's what I do. Uh, right? What would I have done? Would I have called out to Jesus? Would I have sunk in the water? Would I have kept the faith? Would I have been able to walk over there? Well, from what we know of Peter, he was a strong man. He was a fisherman. So naturally, he would have been very able to swim. The question is, why would Peter have become afraid? Surely he wouldn't be scared of the water. Now, although I wonder what I would have done in that situation, it's such a unique scenario, it's pretty much impossible to know. But I think if anyone is going to be successful in this test, Peter is a pretty good candidate. And I think this account shows uh, that even the Peter, even the strong and bold ones, need Christ. Right? Those who are ready to jump into something dangerous for the Lord with boldness, they need to remember they still need Christ. They still need his power. And there's an application of humility there. Even the best that mere humans can do is not enough to accomplish divine purposes, divine goals. And on the other side of that coin, is assurance, because Christ's power is enough. Jesus' power can accomplish great things despite our weakness. In fact, God tells us that his power is made perfect through our weakness. Right? Nothing is too hard for Christ, and therefore we can trust him in all things. Now, in this miracle, we see that Jesus takes the limitations that we have and he is able to do mighty things through them. Right? Peter couldn't walk on water, but Jesus caused him to do so. Right? The fish and the loaves didn't feed more than maybe a dozen people, but Jesus caused it to, to feed thousands. And that is the point of the story. Jesus' power has no limits. Now, our text moves on by describing the next day, the next morning. Basically, the people saw that the disciples left and Jesus left, but they didn't leave together. Right? Jesus went up onto the mountain. And after seeing a few boats pass by, uh, they probably heard that Jesus was in Capernaum. Because wherever Jesus went, uh, people knew that he had power over sickness. He had power over demons. And so upon seeing him, they would send messengers around. Right? Jesus is here. Send the sick. And so the crowd followed Jesus and his disciples to Capernaum. Let's read from verse 25. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So the crowd has no idea how Jesus got there. Right? He didn't get into a boat, and to walk around the lake would have been a very long journey uh, through the night and through mountainous terrain. 
And so that's very unlikely. But Jesus pays no regard to their question, and he just goes straight to the point. This isn't one of Jesus' most popular sayings, is it? Right? The crowd is coming to seek after him. They followed him across the lake. They want to see Jesus. And what does he do? He rebukes them. Right? He doesn't coddle them. He doesn't affirm them. And he doesn't even tactfully try to correct them. He just says it very bluntly. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Talk about sensitivity. And then he gives them an instruction. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So we have here kind of four things. A judgment, a rebuke, and then an instruction, and a promise. Now, we often see this pattern in Scripture when prophets talk to the people. Uh, You can read many of the minor prophet books, And you see the prophet declares judgment, Uh, then he calls the people to repentance, then he instructs them, this is what you should do, and then he promises, uh, delivers promises and hope in God uh, if the people would turn from their ways. And Jesus does the same thing here, right? First he judges their motives, and then he says, don't work for the food that perishes, don't do that, Uh, rather work for the food that endures to eternal life. That's the instruction. And then the promises imply that if you do that, if you work for the food that, in, that endures to eternal life, then the Son of Man will give it to you. Now, I want to compare that model of prophetic speech, who's bringing God's message to the people, which we could also call evangelism, with a modern approach. Now, I was taught in various places in my life growing up, uh, Not by my parents, just so you know, but by those in the church. That first, you must be in an intentional relationship with people before you have the right to speak to them about Christ. Right? If you just go up and start talking with them about God, that's a major red flag and you will turn them away from God. And if you call someone to repentance from evil deeds, you're basically guaranteeing that they will hate you and hate the church forever. That is a sentiment I got from multiple places, and it was actually directly stated to me by a church leader. So don't go in with the agenda to share the gospel, they say. No, first you need to become best friends with them, and then maybe over time you can start hinting, about your faith, but still calls to repentance or any judgment, and you are not doing the Lord's work. And I'm not exaggerating. What I just described, I think, is a pretty common approach to evangelism in many modern churches. Don't judge. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a legalist. Just love the people. Love them. Show them God's love which really meant don't challenge them, don't rebuke them. Now, I think it's no coincidence that I never studied John 6 in any of those settings or the other places where Jesus uh, or John the Baptist or the prophets of old spend no time in small talk relationship building 
but instantly get to the punchline. Repent. You are doing evil in the sight of God. John the Baptist says to the Pharisees when they come out to see him in Matthew 3, 7, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, we also have all heard the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. God loves you, he just doesn't love your sin. Now, that sounds a little bit soft to me, but for many, that saying would still be too strong. Don't talk about God hating things. God is love. God just loves you so much and wants you to come to him. Contrast that approach with what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34. You brood of vipers. This is obviously a favorite term for the Pharisees. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Not only does Jesus say they do evil things, but he says, you are evil because of where your heart is before God. I hope I've made my point that relational, squishy, codly evangelism that fails to bring the gospel has no place in Scripture. Right? That's the key point, that fails to bring the gospel. So the natural question is, uh, am I saying or should we go out and proclaim to the world that they are all broods of vipers? Now, I wouldn't rule it out, but in most cases, no. First off, here's a, here's a few reasons. Uh, Jesus had perfect knowledge and judgment, so we cannot presume to be exactly like him in that way. Uh, however, he did tell us that we can judge fruit, and so much discernment is required. And secondly, a harsh rebuke is not the only way that Jesus reaches out to people. Right? That's not the way that he presents himself every time. Consider already in John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well Jesus was very gracious with her, very patient. And yet, he did not ignore her sin or her need for repentance or her need for a savior. And so I want to be clear. I do think there is value in building relationships with people because most people listen to those that they trust and admire. There is value in speaking graciously, in correcting people with gentleness and love. But may we never forget to call them out of rebellion to God and into repentance and faith to Christ. I believe that modern sensitivity and safetyism of the world has pushed us so far into that ditch of relational evangelism, which is actually better termed making friends, that it's necessary for us to feel that weight of the blunt scriptural rebukes. And to remember that God saves his people in all kinds of different ways. Consider also Jonah, the prophet Jonah. He preached to Nineveh. uh, But really, he hoped that God would send fire and sulfur on them. But still, in in obedience, he preached uh, that judgment is coming. And they repented. No relationship. No love, even. Just preaching judgment. And they were convicted and repented. Now again, I'm not saying that Jonah should be our evangelism model, 
Let us not throw tact and love and grace and wisdom out the window in our encounters with the world around us. But in our pursuit to be winsome or tactful, may we not neglect calling sinners to repentance before their creator. May we not forget to show people their need for Christ or the impending judgment that awaits those who continue to rebel against him. And lastly, we must remember that there is an urgency for we don't know how long we have. One day we think, oh, I should go talk to my buddy about God because I know he's not saved. And the next day, the Lord calls him to account. When he's taken from the earth, it's too late. There is an urgency to tell the lost about their need for Christ. And here's the key point. If we understand their situation rightly, the unbeliever's situation, the most loving thing that we can do for them is not to stand by and watch them on their way to judgment, but to warn them of the wrath to come for the unrepentant. And I believe that's the reason why there's such harsh language in the Bible from men of faith towards a disobedient people. Right? The fact is, God will come to judge the living and the dead. And only those united to Christ will be spared from the cup of wrath. And that reality should compel us to go and tell our loved ones who don't know Christ to leave their darkness behind, to come to him. Now, when Jesus calls these people out in this passage, we'll see at the end of the chapter that some of them actually end up leaving him. They're upset. They're turned away from his hard sayings. But others, I'm convinced there were others that initially came just seeking more physical bread. They thought, this guy's cool. I I want some more bread. But when Jesus exposed their false motivations, they were cut to the heart and repented. That's the gospel effect. Some will turn away, like the seed scattered on the path. And some will repent and turn from their wickedness and will bear fruit. 2 Corinthians gives us another picture of the gospel effect. Uh, Paul says there, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So there's two categories of people. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. When you present the gospel, it will have an effect. And that effect is not up to you. That effect is in God's hands. And perhaps God has ordained that the person that you want to speak to needs you to pester them with the gospel for days or weeks, maybe even years, before they're going to be softened and listen. And so we never give up hope because God's power can overcome any hardness of heart. We see when the angry people leave at the end of John chapter 6, Jesus turns to his disciples. Do you want to leave as well? He asks them. And Peter gives the answer of a Christian. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And we have come to believe. I want us to look at Jesus' words again in verse 26. Because this sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So we talked about the judgment We talked about the need for repentance. And now Jesus gives this instruction. Repent from working for physical food. Rather, work for the food that endures to eternal life. So last week we saw that the crowd didn't listen to Jesus. Uh, They tried to force him to become king. But now they've changed. Now they actually ask the question, what are we supposed to do to be doing the works of God? Now, a question that came into my mind as soon as I read that was, why did they respond that way to Jesus when he said, work for the food that endures to eternal life? He didn't say anything about the works of God. So how did they get there? Why did they respond with, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Well, Jesus said, work for the food that endures. And then he explained that the enduring food will be given to them by the Son of Man. Now, Jesus has already used this term to refer to himself uh, a number of times. And so the men in the crowd who have followed him for a while probably knew that he was referring to himself. So Jesus said, uh, in essence, on me, on the Son of Man, the Father has set his seal. So work for the food that endures to eternal life, and the Son of Man will give that food to you. And he can give it to you because God the Father has set his seal on him. So working for food that endures is in reality working the works of God. Now this is significant because we see the crowd is learning. They're starting to catch on to some of his sayings, at least some of them in the crowd. And then Jesus answers their question. There's no parable. It's just a straight answer. Uh, What do we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, The work of God, believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is to believe in Christ. I'm sure the listeners were not expecting that answer. They were probably thinking he would say, follow the laws of Moses, follow the Ten Commandments. But Jesus says, believe in the one whom God has sent. If you want the food that endures to eternal life, you must believe in me. Now, to the Jews who understood the scope of what Jesus truly meant, they will have understood that that was either blasphemy again, or it was a true declaration of his lordship. Now, we've gone through this, but it bears repeating again and again throughout his ministry, Jesus shows he is not just a good moral teacher. Because a good moral teacher would not commit constant blasphemy equating himself with God, saying that eternal life belonged to him. 
In the words of C.S. Lewis, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is truly Lord. And that's the question that the Jews are trying, they have to answer it. Who is this man? Now let's consider the phrase, set his seal on him. On the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. What does that mean? Well, we saw this phrase in John 3, 33 already. That says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And so the seal here is like a signature, in essence, a special stamp of approval. It has to do with being accepted. Now remember a few weeks back in chapter 5, Jesus talked about his testimony. And he said, I don't testify about myself, but others have borne witness about me that I am the Messiah. So we saw that John the Baptist, uh, and then the works or the signs that Christ did, the Father himself, and the scriptures, they all testified that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the one on whom the Father has given approval, the one on whom the Father has set his seal of affirmation. And it is because Christ has this seal that he can give eternal life. Those two are linked together. Read in the passage, verse 27, it says, which the Son of Man will give to you for, or because, on him, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus has the seal of God, and therefore, he is the one who has the power to give eternal life. I want to close off this morning by considering a few ways that we might apply this text. How does this account of Jesus teach us about ourselves and teach us about God? I'll give two thoughts here. Now first, the Jews in the story, that, the crowd that followed Jesus, they represent the average person quite perfectly, actually. Right? We all like to follow influential people. Right? We like to listen to good speakers, to good musicians. Uh, we like to be entertained, amused, wowed, etc., And Jesus did this like no other person. It's no surprise that he had a following. But Jesus is not satisfied with those who are looking for a good show or with those who, in this case, were looking to have their bellies filled again or with those who are there for really any other reason than to pursue him as Lord and Savior. So if we think about this for ourselves, we can ask the question, why are you here this morning? Right, just like the crowd crossed the lake so that they could see Jesus, people go to church to worship and encounter him. So think about the top reason why you are here this morning. For some, the answer might simply be, I have no other options. The parents said, get in the car, and I came. Right, perhaps you like coming to church because there's a good community uh, of moral support. There's loving people here to find fellowship, uh, to find mutual support and friendship. Or maybe you're here because you've just always gone to church, and that's just what we do. I think it's less so these days, but some people go to church to keep up their social status among their friends, or maybe from their parents. The point is, there are many reasons that people go to church 
that have nothing to do with loving and worshiping our Savior. And so I encourage you to examine your own motivations. The person across the row from you has no idea why you're truly here. But that doesn't matter. Christ knows. And that's what matters. And Christ would tell us all as well, do not work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And we know that the enduring food is Christ himself. The works of God, Jesus said, are to believe in the one whom he sent. And believing is knowing who he is and what he is worthy of. So we who believe in him, we want to worship him. Now, if you're unsure whether your primary reason in coming to church is the correct one, then I would tell you that you should be diligent to prepare yourself intentionally before coming to church. Saturday night is a really good night to pray for the hearts of you and your family that you would strongly desire to honor the Lord in the way that you worship the next morning. An early Sunday morning prayer is a good way to properly align your heart that you might glorify God most sincerely and heartily. And of course, coming to church prayer in the morning is also a great way to do that in the context of other believers. And so we continue to encourage people to come and begin corporate worship with prayer every Lord's Day. Secondly, the Jews asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so Jesus calls believing a work. Isn't that interesting? Now, lest you think that this means that faith is not a gift, we'll continue preaching this chapter. But we must realize and accept that the human act of believing is necessary. And sometimes in our weak moments, we ask ourselves the question, how do I know my faith is strong enough to save me? Do I have enough faith that I am a true Christian? Will it be enough to save me? Well, the answer is no. Faith will not save you. Only Christ saves. Faith does not save. I think people forget that we are saved through faith and not by faith. We're saved by Christ, through faith in Christ. The, the fact is, faith is only as good as its object, as the thing which you place your faith in. Right, so faith in Buddha is only as effective as Buddha is. In this case, it's not effective at all. It doesn't matter how much I believe that he's going to save me. Buddha will not save me from my sins. And in the same way, faith in Jesus Christ, even faith the size of a mustard seed, is as effective as Jesus Christ is. And in this case, Jesus promises that he will grant the food that endures to eternal life to those who work the works of God, which is to believe in him. Now, my hope in going through this is to grant assurance to those who have doubts. The surety of your salvation lies not in your faith, 
but in the object of your faith, which is Christ. He will surely save you. I want you to rest in that, glory in that sweet truth that Christ has given himself for his sheep. He has given the food that endures to eternal life, and he calls us all to believe in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray here that all would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus in faith. Faith in Christ is granted from your right hand, and we thank you for giving it to your church. Your mercy is abounding and your love is so great that we cannot comprehend. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to follow Christ like the crowd of Jews. May we not seek him for any gain that is outside of knowing and loving him. We know that you are not fooled by fake disciples. So Lord, make us real, we pray. We all have areas that we have not laid at your feet. We have sins that we have neglected to kill. We have been slothful in zeal. So Lord, renew us again to a right spirit and a willing heart to love and honor you and to serve our friends and neighbors around us. And as we have heard your word now, may it bring forth conviction and repentance, correction and rebuke, encouragement and teaching. And may we, your people, go forth with renewed vigor to bear fruit and to do good works in love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.